Hi there. This is Dennis Velka with Out Bureau. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Out Bureau Voices, where we have interesting conversations with LGBTQ entrepreneurs, professionals, and leaders from around the world. If you have not yet heard the first episode with Ray Baron Woodford, be sure to click right up here to check out that episode for a little bit of historical context. This gentleman has done a lot. And today we're going to have a interesting conversation talking about some of the civil rights work, including a play and a very interesting network has optioned that play for perhaps a movie. We're going to get into that and I'm going to let uh, Ray tell tell you all about that. Again, we are not going to be doing uh, a lot of the general overview. So again, if you would like that, please click right up here uh, to check that out either now and come back to this or uh, moving forward. Before we get going, be sure to hit that subscribe button right down below and click that bell. That is going to make sure that you are notified when we come out with new episodes. I think you're going to love every conversation with our LGBTQ leaders from around the world. So thank you and welcome back, Ray. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me back again. Pleasure. Well, absolutely. We had a really interesting conversation last time. Uh, you have done so much from being uh, running in politics uh, and having your life threatened uh, to creating a housing movement and food movement. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, you actually, if uh, from our original conversation, you actually have a book out um, regarding the um, uh, of food. Yeah, I, 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 I got involved um, really sort of briefly in the in food bank, uh, food bank sector. One day outside my office in, in, in London, I, I found two men in suits going through the rubbish. And uh, I thought, what the hell are they doing, you know, you know, with suits going through looking for food? So I, I broke my office meeting up, went out to ask these two guys, and they said, well, we've got jobs, but we've got to wait five weeks until we get paid, and we need to eat, so we're going through the rubbish because people do throw out decent food. So I was so mortified by this that I got involved with uh, an elderly friend of mine called Barbara Raymond, who is in the 80s, and I uh, said, what should we do about this? And we, we set up a, uh, an independent food bank, and within six months, we were feeding four and a half thousand people a month, six, seven days a week. And it became the biggest food bank in Britain, the, the largest independent network in Britain. Mm. And um, through the food bank, I was it, giving the food was the easy aspect to it. The issues why people needed food and the complications around unemployment, poor housing, mental health, disability, all, you know, hit the fan. And uh, I always needed money to fund the food bank. And so one day I overheard this conversation where a, a far-right jock DJ was on the radio and she was talking about why is it poor people are always fat? And so I was enraged. So I got on the radio and said, are you aware? And this, 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 this far-right jock, her name was Julia. And I said, are you aware that the reason why poor people are fat is because a loaf of bread full of rubbish is 47 pence or, you know, less than a dollar. 
or uh, a healthy Swede is is two, three pounds, you know, two or three dollars. If you're on a low income, what are you going to feed your family? The food that's bad for you or the healthy food, which is too expensive for you to afford. And so she said, oh, yeah, Ray, you've got a good point. I'll come and check you out. So she came to my food bank and she was so shocked by um, the fact that all the stereotypical perceptions she had of people using a food bank didn't exist. Our food bank was full of the working poor, not homeless people, not people with drug addictions or, or you know, mums with 60-inch colour TVs. These were working people. But she did an hour and a half live broadcast from the food bank, and it completely changed her view around food bank use. And I'm dyslexic, and I, I, I was so moved by by realizing the power of media. But I wrote my book, Food Bank Britain, and um, Food Bank Britain ended up getting to the White House. Uh, 2015, I got Christmas Eve, I got a, a, a text from uh, Obama's uh, chief of staff telling me he'd given a copy of my book to President Obama. So that was like amazing. And then so, one day out of- So what year did you start this food bank? Uh, 2014. Wow. Not so, long ago. Not long ago. Not long ago. It's only 2014. And it, it just sort of spiraled beyond control. And then, like I said, I wrote the book. And then, bizarrely, you know, it was not it, you know, like one of those things that just happened. The book became a huge, unexpected hit. So, uh, a radio station in Marbella in Spain, which is like, you know, one of the most glamorous places in Europe, with this sort of glamorous radio station discovered that people coming from Bulgaria and the refugees marching to England were carrying copies of my book, Food Bank Britain. And so she wrote me up and said, you know, do you realize that your book in Bulgaria is outselling Harry Potter? I said, well, what the hell is that about? And she said, well, the reason is that people, when they come to England, they know they will get a job and they know they have to work for several weeks. Uh, but with your book, it tells people how to get food. And of course, when they arrive, they're going to need to eat. And so my book became this, 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 you know, unexpected seller all over the world. And it opened up all these doors for me. So, you know, I, I then realized the power as an activist where I go to a meeting, there'd be 12 people in a room. I could write a book or I could write a, 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 a newspaper column and millions of people would read it. And once you become an author, it opens doors. You are an author. And so radio stations, media commentators, whenever there's anything in Britain about food or about poverty, they ring up Ray. Ray's always got a good quote. Ray knows what he's talking about because he's run a food bank. He's not an activist that talks about an activist, how activism works. Ray's somebody that's experienced being an activism and how it works. And so that's, that's, that's sort of how it moved on. And then from that, I got involved through the radio station. This is how it really gets into my civil rights work. Uh, the food bank became so huge, we needed money to fund it. And we couldn't get charity registration because people would give us food, not cash. And you need cash in England to get charity registration. So um, I discovered this woman called Kath Duncan who was a civil rights activist in the 1930s. At the time, I didn't know she was LGBT and that she lived in my street where I'd lived in, in South East London. And so I set up a, a, a community festival to raise money for the food bank because we were feeding so many people. 
And then I discovered that Kath Duncan had this story. She kept coming up in, 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 uh, in little stories and little snippets that I kept hearing about whilst running a heritage festival. And so I set up on this journey to find out who Kath Duncan was. And I discovered that in the 1930s, she was uh, a very beautiful uh, Scottish woman from Fife in Scotland with red hair and blue eyes, but only five foot two, who was so shy she would stand on a shoebox to make public statements, who became a suffragette in Scotland and became best friends of the wife of Sir Winston Churchill before she married Sir Winston Churchill. So she's a really powerful woman. In 1924, she married her husband, Sandy Duncan, who then I suddenly began to realise that the reason she got married was because they were both gay. And in those days, it wasn't lawful to be gay. So they became married to hide their sexuality, to not distract from their politics. And then they moved to London in the 1924, and she became part of the suffragette movement. In 1930, she was hugely important in the Cable Street anti-fascist movement, the, the, the civil rights uh, movement in Britain in the 1930s, the hunger marches. Uh, she was involved with the International Brigade, which was the British and Americans fighting fascism in Spain. And, and so I, I, I sort of, she was doing so much. She was involved with the first civil rights uh, debate in the House of Commons in Britain. And um, she was also involved with uh, so many social injustices. You know, a lot of people we know in history are famous for one campaign or another. Kat Duncan did them all. But where she went wrong, she was LGBT. She was also a communist, and it's never been called to be a communist. And I think that was really the reason why I, I really came across her, not much was known about it because nobody wanted to, to claim her heritage. And as a gay man, I think it's really important that we have our role models, that we have our heroes. And it's not just about Marvel comics, it's about people that have done extraordinary things. So Kath Duncan um, was the only woman after Mary Queen of Scott who was jailed, not because of what she would do, but the fear of what she would say would cause a revolution at the time of the Russian Revolution in the 1930s. So an extraordinary woman. And then I found out, of course, she was LGBT. And when I was in Scotland researching her, my book, uh, I started writing her biography, which is called The Last Queen of Scotland. And that, that led into my civil rights work. But everybody said there should be a play. And I thought, well, how do we do a play? And so I thought, um, I discovered that the first uh, civil rights case, legal case fought in Britain by the Council of Civil Liberties was Kath Duncan. When Kath Duncan was jailed for protesting it for her civil rights, really? she went to Holloway Prison. She was jailed. And that caused such a national outrage in the 1930s that um, it led the Council of Civil Liberties to be called the National Council of Civil Liberties because of Kath Duncan, the profile she brought to the campaign. We know National Council of Civil Liberties now, today, as liberty. And the National Council of Civil Liberties, the organisation that all civil rights movements around the world are based on. And it all came about because of LGBT Kath Duncan. And by rights, 
she should be an icon by right she should be a household name wow. and i've been struggling for years to get her recognized we now have a, a park bench in one of my local parks i wrote my civil rights play liberty which tells the story of how the lgb uh, uh story and the civil rights movement happened in britain in the 1930s because what people forget is that we all know about stonewall we all know about stonewall but the LGB struggle in England under Kath Duncan was exactly the same. She mobilised the trans community, she mobilised the gay disabled people, she mobilised lesbians, she mobilised gay people. It was them that established the civil rights movement in Britain. And it's just crazy that in our schools in Britain, we're taught, taught about the civil rights in America, in South Africa, in India, but we're not told about British civil rights. And really? so writing my play, writing my book, you know, The Last Queen of Scotland, was really about telling our LGBT history that has not been told and not known because all in people in England, they all base their LGBT history on Stonewall, which is American. And it's a great and important part of world history. But Kath Duncan went to jail. The illness she caught in jail is a direct result of her her. Uh, her, her, her activism led to her death. She died, she was a martyr to our cause. And so she deserves to be sort of recognized. And in 1954, when she actually died in, in, in a hospital in Scotland, um, the people came onto the streets in London, in Deptford in Southeast London, and everybody said, how do we celebrate this extraordinary woman? And somebody in the crowd yelled up, the last queen of Scotland, because she was so glamorous, she dressed like a Hollywood goddess. Really? She was beautiful, she was stylish, she loved drama. Uh, she was the ultimate diva of her age. And, but she was involved in so many different things that everybody loved her. And even in parliament, they, they respected and admired her. She was called the Red Herring. She was called the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kath Buncombe. Uh, but she always had the protection of Winston Churchill. So even in the 40s when communists were locked up during the war, uh, Kath Duncan was, you know, was spied on day and night. She had spies outside her house, which actually made it easier for me to write her biography because there was so much secret data to things like notes about what she ate, the people, the company she kept, where she went, it was all recorded by the Home Office, by the wow. spy network. And so I had this wonderful data of material to write Kath Duncan's biography. And then out of this, which, which made the, that took it to another level, was that um, this all came back in the middle of my, doing my radio station in Marbella, doing this story about the food bank. And uh, while I was in Marbella, I did, they offered me a radio station. They said, look, look, we really like you. You're a really interesting guy, Ray. Let's do a radio show once a month about your views on the world, world issues, whether it's LGB, whether it's civil rights. And so I wanted to do a radio show that told people the news the way I saw it, but in a way that people could understand. Instead of just doing two seconds on a big LGB story, we would go in depth and do like 10 minutes, which doesn't sound a lot, but in radio times, 10 minutes, as you know, is a long time. And so I started doing this and I discovered this guy called Hisham Alamishi, who was a civil rights activist in Yemen. And I'd have him on my radio show uh, once a month to report what was going on in Yemen. And he became so huge because he had such humor and such wit and such clarity in the way he spoke. He got picked up by CNN in America, by The Guardian in England, became quite a big star. 
And then out of the blue, he was kidnapped by the Houthis in, um, in Yemen and put in a cell. And actually, he sent me a, a tweet yesterday, and it's now three years ago today when we're doing this interview, that he was in a cell in the ground, not knowing whether he was going to be tortured or murdered. Oh, my God. And um, I, felt, I felt guilty because it was my show that had made him, you know, you know global, you know, Yemeni civil rights person. And so I uh, set up this movement on social media called Free Hisham, and it got involved with the American Senate got involved, the British government got involved, the UN got involved because of his profile. And suddenly the whole world was trying to get Hisham out of the Houthis. And then out of the blue, somebody said to me, Ray, you're so good with all what you do. Why don't you just ask the Houthis on Twitter? And it was said as a sort of off-the-cuff remark. And so I thought, well, why not? Everybody's on Twitter. If you can get hold of Trump on Twitter, why not the Houthis? So <laughs> I tweeted the leader of al-Houthi, of the Houthis in Yemen, not expecting a reply. And he replied. He, after about a week, I got a reply from Yemen. And it was the Houthi leader direct, and it was in Arabic, so I had to use translate, Google Translate on Twitter to translate it all. And we negotiated Hisham's release on my sure. Twitter account. And I did a deal, I had to write a, a story, which I would have written anyway about Saudi Arabia. And we got Hisham out of Yemen. And he's the only, one of the very few uh, civil rights people to escape jail in, in, in the Houthis uh, part of Yemen without broken bones, alive with his wife and two children. Now he's living in the West, he now lives in Canada, he's working with the UN, and they now expect him to be, he's the West's favourite to be the non-corruptible leader of Yemen when the war is over. And all of that came about through the food bank. And so when you talk about sort of activism and stories and extraordinary things happening, who would have thought that, you know, a tweet and, and you know, a food bank could lead to my involvement with the civil rights movement and, of course, coming back to Cap Duncan. And then I felt that, you know, globally, if I have this power through social media, I need to work with other groups, organisations to sort of empower people. Many organisations, quite often it's just one person and a dog, whether it's LGB rights, whether it's women's rights, whether it's refugee rights, quite often there's, you know, two people and no money. And so I set up the Cap Duncan Equality and Civil Rights Network, which works globally, giving a voice to all these different groups, empowering them, getting them money to help them do what they need to be done, whether it's getting books to teach refugees English in refugee camps, whether it's supporting LGBT people who are having to be secret because being a Muslim as well as being LGB and being a refugee is extremely dangerous. It's about mm. life and death and giving these people support and, and, and directing them and working with the different political networks I have can actually empower life-saving work. And so that's how my civil rights really sort of progressed from the food bank to the Cap Duncan Network, my play Liberty, which, which is going to be staged again in 2020 with a really big name cast. I'm really you know, blown away by the big names that want to be in the reproduction of my, my new stage play, Liberty. I ended up writing songs. We've written a song called Forbidden Love. We've written Fly the Flag, which are in, in keeping with the song. It's not a musical, but I found by writing songs, and when you do a play, you then have something more easier to promote the play, the work. It's less political. And then we found that where we staged it in London, children as young as 10 came and loved it because of the music. 
And so we found that there is a way of engaging people. So now we're staging it in London 2020 as part of LGB History Month. And then we are hopefully going to tour it with pride around the UK after that. And I, I've had interest from producers all around the world who want to stage liberty. So it's really important that our story, the British story, like Stonewall and like, you know, Harvey Milk, you know, the, the brilliant movie by uh, Dustin Lance Black, also has the same resonance with my book, my play Liberty, and my book, The Last Queen of Scotland. So writing, I, you know, I found very late, even though I'm dyslexic, that writing, it's not how many books you sell, it's who reads those books and the influence your work has on changing policy and making the difference and saving lives. And, and I can say through my civil rights work, I've saved lives. And wow. there's not many people that in their lifetime that actually know that as fact. And that's something I'm, I'm humbled by and I'm proud by. And the fact that I've been able to do these extraordinary things drives my activism and it drives me forward and it inspires other people because I know that even if you're a disabled person, if you've got Twitter on your phone, from your bedroom, from your garden shed, from your treehouse, from your boat, from even your homeless hostel, you can actually, you have the power with your phone to make a difference. And people always think the world is so big and there's so many issues. You just gotta find your issue, find your strength and fight with your passion what you believe. And it's amazing what you can achieve. It, it definitely is. And, you know, talking of us older guys out there when we're talking about on our last episode, again, folks, if you'd like more information, we're going to uh, reference this right up here. If you'd like to take a look at the first um, um, episode where we had uh, kind of some historical context is we we, we talked about um, a little bit of our age <laughs> and you know looking at what has changed um, and you know back in the 80s and so forth we didn't have the technology that we have today and we have tools now to reach people and one of my uh sayings uh, that i have is that miracles and magic can happen when you have faith believe in yourself and you take action so whether that is you want to start a business or you're you have an issue that you want to help uh, uh address you know like you with the the food bank it's you believed in yourself to some degree even if even if that's like, well, no one else is doing it, so I guess I will, whatever that is, you have a sense of belief in yourself that you have the ability to do something about whatever it is in front of you, okay? But the key is, is you take action. So miracles and magic can happen when you believe in yourself and you take action. So you have, you have demonstrated that time and time again throughout your, throughout your life and so one of the things though in in taking action is writing the book that must have taken although there you mentioned um writing the book uh liberty uh, that there was a lot of because she was under surveillance and so forth that there was a lot of content for you um but how long did it you know from the time you you had the idea you know wow i think i i think there's something here um uh, you know starting to 
you know, build up the, the kind of sense of a validation that this is a project you would like to work on, you know, so when you actually started to go, okay, I'm working on this to completing it, um, you know, talk us, talk to us a little bit about your process. Right. It was, it was really, and obviously being dyslectic. So, so I'm very fortunate I have a house in Spain. So I went to Spain, locked myself in the mountains for a few weeks and worked the structure of what I wanted to do, the story, how I wanted to work it. And I decided that because Kath Duncan was involved with so many different aspects of civil rights, I wanted to, to departmentize it. So I, I wrote a different chapter as a different story. So the, the last Queen of Scotland is really her a different story in a different chapter. So not everybody wants to read a hard, high book. People will have different aspects of history that they're more engaged with than others. So I wanted to really capture it as lots of different stories rather than one really long tale that might lose people before they got to the end. So therefore it's a book that you can go back to. So that was the, the concept when I was writing it, that it would be historically important because people in, in, in the age in which everybody wants everything for 30 seconds, you can nip through the book relatively easy to which part of history or which part of activism she was involved with you want to be engaged with and which you want to reference from. So that was really, really important. And then when I started writing the book, I never thought I'd write a play, but people kept saying, oh, it should be a play, it should be a play. I've never written a play. But then fortunately through the history, the police reports, the newspaper reports, I had the words, I had, you know, the reports. This is what she said, this is what he said, this is what they said. And therefore I could incorporate into my play the actual words. So the actual words in my play Liberty are exactly as they were reported at the time. And what oh, was no. extraordinary was about this book as well was that the civil rights debate led to the first conference, the first uh, House of Commons debate on civil rights. Once Kath Duncan was jailed, George Lansbury, who's leader of the House of uh, leader of the Labour Party in the 1930s, who was the grandfather of, you know, uh, Angela Lansbury, the, the, the big star in America, uh, her great-grandfather. He um, led this debate in the House of Commons, and it was recorded in Hansard, which is how every House of Commons debate uh, and, and conference is recorded in history. And so I had the actual House of Commons papers of the actual civil rights debate, which I was able obviously to, to take and use the words almost word for word. And of course I've edited, so it's not too laborious because the debate is nearly three hours. So I've edited it so it's relevant from an LGB perspective. Mm. So it's an actual, uh, the, 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 the second act of my play, which is set in the House of Commons, is word for word accurate but of course I've cut it down quite substantially so I don't lose the audience. Gotcha. And, and so that was sort of quite important. And then, you know, trying to get it published was really, really difficult because it was like a woman nobody would heard of. I thought, everybody said to me, everybody will want to see a play about a powerful woman and an interesting woman who was beautiful. But the minute they discovered she was a communist and they discovered that she was LGBT, nobody wanted to know and, and it was by chance that uh, Dustin Lance Black who wrote Brokeback Mountain and Harvey Milk saw my play on social media and recommended it to an organization in San Francisco, a very well-known gay organization who gave me the money to fund it in London. We staged it in 2019 where it won 
huge acclaim. I'm, I'm really proud and honoured at the, 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 the critical acclaim that it got. But I was still very nervous because I hadn't written. So I'd seen this British actor that I loved, a Shakespearean actor called Emily Cardin. And I wrote her and I said, look, I love your work and I think you'd be really good at playing Emily playing Kat Duncan, would you consider it? So I sent her the script and I thought this is my calling card. If she likes the script, then I've got a book and I've got a play. And I sent her the script and she said, sign me up, I'll do this play. And so I immediately had one of the finest British actors playing the role. And then out wow. of the blue, I had this guy called Alex Reed, who one we have a program here called you know Big Brother. And you might have it in America. And he wants celebrity big brother who's married to a famous uh, uh, a model in Britain. And he was also a cross-dressing uh, cage fighter. So he was quite a high profile. He wrote to me out of the balloon and said, look, Ray, I love this play. I'd really love to be in the play because it would be good for my career. It would take me to a new level in terms of me being seen as a serious actor, not somebody that's mocked as a, a cross-dressing cage fighter. And, uh, and he's you know heterosexual. He likes to see himself as. And so I, I signed him up for the play. And then when we were doing the play and we we're doing the auditions, I had in mind that I would have a men play. You know the old. I fell for the old trick. But a play because it's period it has to have the same type of caricatures. But when I had the audition, the women were so strong at the audition that instead of having men, I cast all the men as women roles, because when you have a great story, it's a story that tells its story, not the color of their skin or their gender. And so I found that the most captivating people on stage were the women, which was the right thing to do. And it's at this stage that I realized that Kath Duncan was gay. And so I decided to translate her relationship, her husband, Sandy Duncan, to a woman. So I had a woman play her husband within the play which was a sort of soft touch to Kath Duncan, who would have liked to have had a woman as a partner, not a man, had history been kinder to her back in the 1930s, and she didn't have an issue with LGBT. And so that changed it. So it really changed the, demographic, the, 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 the structure of the play from a period drama, which would be predictable, into a period drama which was very now and was very true to the spirit of my writing. And so I was really, really proud to do it and, and it's extraordinary that the, the types of people that have agreed to do the new play so the new play we have the people this is an exclusive for you but among those that are, have said they want to be in my production in London include uh, a, a really serious theatre uh, a guy in London called John Moses who played Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ Superstar in the West End it's a big West End star you know, he's not missing in America, but in West End terms, he's very big. And then okay. also, which is interesting, because in the play, there's a, a transvestite character called Percy Duke. You may still remember, but Marilyn, who is a pop star with Boy George in the 80s, has wants to play Percy Duke in the play. So really? I think it's really important that when you're doing the play, that it has, instead of having straight actors play gay roles, I think it's really important to be true to the piece that you have actors who understand the historical context of your work and the struggle, but also you have LGBT people, whether it's male or female LGBT, whatever their gender, playing those type of characters. 
And so I have like, you know, lesbians playing, you know, gay men, whatever, because I think it's really important for the spirit of the work. And then out of the blue, of course, as, as, as we now know, is that in October, when all this craziness was going on, I got an email from a production company in L.A. saying they wanted to sign my play Liberty for film production. And I thought, how is that possible? So I, I just thought it was a scam. So I ignored it, ignored it, until I got the fifth email. And the fifth email was, are you aware how difficult it is to get a play and a structure like yours uh, uh, you know, made into a production in New York and LA and to get it broadcast by Netflix. And so I said, so I, it got me curious. So, you know, they were angry with me that I'd ignored them. So I, um, I replied to the email. I did my homework on, online. I searched and, and checked that this was a legitimate production company and it was Netflix. And so they tuned me in for a, 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 you know, a really strange conference call. And I'm not a writer, I'm not a producer, you know, it's all new to me. I just go with the flow and, you know, life takes me where it takes me. And my work, you know, happens as it happens. And um, I thought I'd be ringing this producer, you know, as assistant. I thought it'd be just like a girl in the office. And when I got through in this complicated phoning system that I had to get through, there was producers, directors in LA, in London, in New York. There's 48 members of the Netflix team on this phone conference call to oh sign me up. For oh my, my gosh. Liberty. It was extraordinary. And then um, it was like, we want you, we love the play, and the, you know, we, we're not sure whether we want to do a period drama about Kath Duncan or whether we make a film and then we do a, a, a period drama series. And their issues has always been about the fact that nobody knows uh, Kath Duncan. They've got issues, the fact she's a communist, so that's sort of an issue with them. But I, I'm trying to sell it at the moment on the basis, let's do uh, a film about the British civil rights movement and, and focus on Kath Duncan. And the communist side is very small. And so it's not, you know, the, not the, the focus of the film. And then if that's a big success and it wins Oscars, because we keep hearing about all these women that want great roles, you don't get a better role than playing Kath Duncan. And then from the film, you do the, the period drama series is, is the, the fallout. So that's where we, we have been at. And then a week later, they sent me another email and they allocated me a producer to be responsible for my welfare, a producer. So they didn't tell me it was the producer at the time. They just said, we've got this woman who's looking after you. So I had this number I had to ring in New York, and it was one of the top LA, New York was one of the top women producers in America who wow. was responsible for my welfare, for my work. So, and there I was chatting on the phone to her in New York. And it was like, it was just been, the whole experience had been so surreal. And of course then COVID hit, in February this year. And so, you know, we had hoped this year my play would tour, but it's now touring, as I said, 2022. And uh, the Netflix deal is, is there. They're, they're telling me realistically it's going to take about five years because you have to write the script and then you've got all the directors that are good or working for the next two or three years. So putting the whole production when you're working on a, a period drama is more complex and expensive than your usual production. So that's where we are at the moment. So I've gone from, you know, food bank to be friends of LA producers to being on your great show. So you know, <laughs> life is extraordinary. 
Too interesting. Well, uh, I will add that if there is an op if there is an opportunity, um, one of my interviews and someone I've been aware of and now know um, is a New York Broadway producer. So if there if it doesn't conflict with the Netflix things, um, I can put you two in touch. Because um, he he has produced several hit uh, hit shows uh, in New York, and of course that too is you know temporarily shut down due to the COVID and so forth that we're going through as well. Uh, but the fact that these things take time, be happy to make that introduction um, for you. I think it would be something. I don't know him well, um, but certainly being an LGBT focus, it might be something of interest. Who knows? It's great. It's, it's a rad and while, I, while I've been very careful with the plays to design a play that doesn't need a stage. So the concept of the play is it, it works with the audience. So bizarrely, it works very well within a COVID time, which is why it's being staged in London in, in 2020, because the audience are part of the cast, the way it's designed. It doesn't have a stage. Really? It, it takes, everybody's part of the action. So the, the, the play itself is very unique. It, it uses films. So we recreated the scenes from the 1930s, which we screen in black and white into the theatre and then we create the spaces so you feel that you're in the events we have fight scenes in the theatre or in the community space so it's very cheap production to produce because 1930s fashion is still very now so you don't need a costume designer as such and we we use the music which works really well and we have this really really romantic scene where the two gay characters and all of the stories in the play are true the two gay guys are, are, are arrested for the fifth time and they're about to go to jail for 12 years so 12 years altogether and it's it's this song is is their arrest and at the time the song in the 1930s was the tango what people forget is the tango was written for gay men for, for men to dance together the, the original tango was men dancing with men really? and so with my husband we wrote forbidden love which is this tragic love song with these two gay men singing and dancing together and then we project onto the wall at the back the dream of these two amazing latin american dancers doing the tango in line to my song forbidden love and then the, the guys dancing on this film are these two gay guys who are dreaming if only they could put their fingers through their hair and dance the tango together and so that's how we got so that the music is and then because now we have marilyn who wants to be in the play we're now writing a unique song for her percy duke ballard for the second act because when i wrote it i i didn't think the music would would be so important because i'm not a, a music writer but people love the songs so much. We wrote three songs for the first act, but we've now decided in the second act to write three more songs, three original songs. And we feel that gives the play global hits. So even if you have language issues, the action of the play and the way it's staged and set translates whether it's Spanish, Chinese, you know, Italian or Norwegian. And so I think that's, and when you're a writer, what you want your work to be staged and the story told as broadly as possible. And I, I think I, I've done that through my play. And I think what makes it different because of my history of an activist, I, I can translate that activism through my writing to be very accurate. And one of the, the extraordinary things about my play on the, on the opening night, 
an old man came to my play called John White, and he was 99 years old. And he had marched with Kath Duncan in the 1930s as a young man. He was 99. Wow. And he came to the play, and at the end of the play, the cast all came out, all in their costumes. And I even had Emily Carding wearing the hat that Kath Duncan wore in the 1930s. Somebody had this hat in their shop that they've kept, you know, as a family emblem, as symbol for all those years. And I found this hat and Emily wore it. And they all came out and greeted John. And he was in tears and he was so moved by it. And I said, John, have I done a good job? And he said, I'm here with my comrades as I was in the 30s. And the, the, the character portraying the accuracy of the work. We even did things like we had tobacco candles. So when people came into the hall, we lit candles that smelled of tobacco so that people get the feel of the space that would have been when they were in the 1930s. And so we took him through the smell and through the production, the costumes and the banners and the black and white films that we screened that we, uh, to what it would have been like in the 1930s. And when you've got somebody of 99 years of age who lived that period and who remembered it and it brought it back so clearly for a man of 99 that felt he was, you know, 19 again, you know, that was out of all the things I've ever done in my life, that was probably the most powerful because I've got it right. And then I thought, Kath, wherever you are up there, I think I've done you justice with my play and with my book. And it's not about how many books they sell. It's the story that it has and the people that get inspired by you know, The Last Queen of Scotland and by my play, Liberty. Wow. You, you've, you've researched. You've written the play. You have all of the senses going on, you've written mute, so you've got the words, you've got the acting, you've written music, and you even go to the, the smells. Wow, you have me excited. Now, I, I want to see this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to experience this. We'll have yeah. to bring to London. We've got to get it into we've got to get into New York. I have a good friend of mine called Michael Minicelli, who used to have a partner called Ben, who used to be a producer in New York. He doesn't do it anymore. He, he runs a big uh, health organisation, but it would be great to bring it to New York because it is such a unique type of production. And, and the reason why we're doing, we're staging it in London for a limited run in 2022 is really to have big names. And I mean, the main star of the show will be somebody that everybody in America knows because. Mm. I'm trying to do with this play, not stage my play, I'm trying to break it as a major work. And I think a combination of the Netflix and the staging in London with a very famous cast, with a you know big star in the, in the lead, will actually establish it as a really important work and that hopefully will put the speed dial on Netflix to actually bring forward five years to two or three, which is what I'm hoping for. Awesome, this sounds, it, it sounds amazing. And of course, with all that you have done, it, it's no wonder that you have put such methodical detail into this. And for, for not, quote unquote, having written one before, the, the level that you have gone to into this just sounds uh, incredible. Uh, so I can't wait to, to see it. Do you have any, you know, hashtags or anything else already kind of set up that you would like people to... Uh, to utilize? Well, yeah, I mean, people can get hold of me direct, obviously through you or through the Kath Duncan Equality and Civil Rights Network. My books are on Amazon or Kindle. Hopefully you put a link on your show so that people can get the books through you. 
Absolutely. my last Queen of Scotland biography of Kath Duncan or my stage play Liberty. The, the, the music is not in the playbook, though. The music I keep separately. People want to stage the play. I'm not in it for the money. I want people to stage the play. People want the, the access to the music. They can contact me direct. That's how I know where the play is being staged and when, because they have to contact me direct so that I can make sure the work is being staged in a way that's complementary of our community and not some sort of farce or uh, uh, something that discredits my work. So it's important to me that my work is, is, is performed, even if it's in a church hall, I don't care where it's performed, but it, it has to be done with some real sense of, you know, uh, uh, realism and some real sense that, 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 that it's important to those that are performing it. It's not just a story, it's more than that. Oh, well, absolutely. Wow, how how cool. Well, um, I will shoot you over this other, this producer, uh, Broadway producer's uh, information um, when we, uh, later on today. Uh, so again, uh, definitely we'll have links here, uh, here on YouTube, if you are viewing this on YouTube, um, as well as, of course, we will have our episodes page, uh, which will have both the um, uh, YouTube uh, 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 video as well as uh, links to all of the audio versions. So if you are listening to this on Apple uh, podcast, um, iTunes, uh, or yeah, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, and so forth. Uh, be sure to check out Out Bureau at outburo.com for the episode page. Uh, we'll be linking to those books where you can find out more information on them. And of course, Ray, uh, you know, as as events unfold in and around this, would love for you to keep me directly um, informed and would love to have you back to chat more about this um you know again as, as events come uh come forward so um so what i'd like for folks to do is to take a few moments and down in the comments below uh, please go ahead and uh uh share share your thoughts about this but also uh, perhaps give a shout out to netflix be sure to tag them uh with hashtag netflix or the at symbol at netflix along with with your comments and questions for ray regarding his play uh to hopefully bring again visibility perhaps we can help fast track this on the uh uh netflix schedule uh well ray this has been such a, a delight uh and an interesting conversation i seriously you know you you're, you're describing it just has made me want to see it and hopefully that that'll make uh, our audience wants uh, want to see and participate as uh with this as well you bring up a really great point there are so many people within history that have done great things that also happen to be lgbtq and um bringing that in bringing information bringing their their stories to light i think is so so um important and you highlighting a, a key figure uh, in, uh, from your part of the world, I think is is awesome. So looking forward to more people learning about Kath Duncan through your great work and your focus on uh, on her as a civil rights leader who's impacted the, the globe. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Dennis. I can't wait to hear it all. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you again for tuning in to this episode of Out Bureau Voices. Be sure to hit that subscribe button down below and click that bell to ensure that you're notified when new episodes come available. And as mentioned, also, if you'd like to listen to these episodes on the go, although I love the facial expressions, like this. <laughs> Be sure to um, uh, follow us. Um, and again, hit hit Out Bureau. You're going to see episodes up at the top and you're going to have direct access to the 14 different podcasting applications that we're on. You can even ask the your uh, Amazon Alexa to play Out Bureau Voices and she'll do it. Thank you so much. This is Dennis Belko with Out Bureau. That's O-U-T-B-U-R-O dot com. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,